Don't be shy. Or you can do it while being shy, it's fine. Whatever. Sweet. You just wait till the end so you could run. That's awesome. <laughs> keep going. Yeah, keep going if you're heading out. Um, hey, everybody. I'm Nick Gibson. I'm one of the pastors here at High Point. And Merry Christmas. It's great to see you all. I can't see you guys up in the front without having my retinas burned out of my face. So I just trust you up there. I love you too. And um, I just want to do the Christmas reflection sermon kind of thing here. Um, I've been through a number of Christmases, not as many as some of you, and one of the things that seems to come up again and again is that um, everybody, at least everybody who manages to either go to or be dragged to church on Christmas Eve um, experiences, on, on some level, believes in one of what I would just call three different Jesus, baby Jesuses. Go ahead and put that up if you can. Um, the first one is the one that basically everybody sort of believes in. And you might call that one the, the peace child Jesus, right? And if you go to, um, if you go to Luke's gospel, there's this verse that's translated this way now. The angels are speaking to the shepherds and telling them that this child has been born. And they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Now in 1611, when Tyndale was translating that, he translated it this way. Um, peace on earth, and goodwill towards men, which actually is not a perfectly accurate translation, but it's the one that makes it on most Christmas cards because it can be as secular as all get out. And so we get Christmas cards that say, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And who doesn't like that, right? Um, the, the one prophecy of Jesus that comes true all the time and that any of us could have prophesied is, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Right? That's not a rocket scientist. You don't have to be the son of God to get that one right. And, um, but it, it's not just literal military conflict of which all of us have a, a kind of real longing for peace. I mean, there are people in this room tonight that your family's coming apart. Your kids are breaking your heart. You know you're going to get fired in the next year. Somebody swindled you this year. Um, people gossip about you terribly at school or at work. There's just not a lot of goodwill towards other people that you've experienced. And as credible or uncredible as some baby being born in Israel 2,000 years ago makes sense of that, there is part of you that goes, dang it, we could use a whole lot more peace on earth and goodwill towards men, right? The question then becomes, though, uh, how, how do you get that peace? Right? Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. The angels declared peace on earth to, on whom God's favor rests. And yet there are still—Jesus then later said there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, like bad stuff is going to happen. And it's because there's a very specific way God, in the person of Jesus, sought to bring peace to us, and that is by Jesus being what I would just call the second baby Jesus, that he's the Savior child, right? In Matthew's gospel, the angel is speaking to Joseph about Mary, who's supposed to become his wife, after he found out she was pregnant, strangely. And the angel says this, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because 
He will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is, the, is that's just the Greek version of Joshua from the Old Testament. And the name Joshua means savior. It means he saves. And so he was supposed to be named Jesus because he would save his people, not, not from the Romans, not from the wars or the rumors of wars of that day, but from something else. He was going to save his people from their sins. Because it turns out, sins and being saved from the guilt of doing, having done them, and from the slavery of wanting to continue to do them, is what breaks down the peace on earth and the goodwill between men. And God gave the person of Jesus not just to restore the relationship of peace between God and human beings by taking away the guilt of our sins, but by actually saving us out of our sinning, by transforming us from the inside out so there would be God's goodwill in us, that we would be full of peace rather than rage and fear and pride and avarice, and so that we would have goodwill to spread among men. There's a problem with that, too. That is not the whole deal. That is not everything. And if you only go that far, you don't even get as far as the first baby. There's another one in Mar that John's gospel focuses on. There is a, th a third meaning of the child of Jesus. And the, the best I can describe that is to say that he's the glory child. In John's Gospel, it says this about Jesus coming. We beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let me just posit something for you to think about. You do not get the other two without this one. It is a package deal. Seeing and savoring and beholding and coming to understand the glory is the only thing that can motivate what it means that he is the Savior in us. If we will believe in him and only a glorified motivation in knowing Christ as Savior for ourselves and being saved from our sins will actually produce people that can have peace on earth and goodwills towards others. So you could say it this way. What, what John 1 says about what the child of Jesus is all about is that it is, God, it is God's heart to show us his glory supremely in Jesus. This is my slightly more literal translation of the NIV. There's a couple places where the Pew Bibles and the newer translation, it's just trying to be so understandable that there's a couple of things that get obscured that are really important in this passage. So this is my translation of it. And I didn't just make it up. I did take Greek, right? <clears throat> he says, we beheld his glory. This is John 1, I think 14 to 16. We beheld his glory, that is the glory of Christ, the glory of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received grace, and the literal translation is, instead of grace. For the law came through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God no one has seen ever, is the literal translation of that line. God no one has seen ever. But... The only God, the one in the bosom of the Father, has made him known. Right? That bosom, that's kind of a weird 
it's kind of a weird word, right? You kind of like think of like a like kind of large woman hugging you when you're a little kid and like pulling her, your head into her chest or something weird. And like, that, like we just don't use that word. But hard is a little cliche. And it's actually not the biblical word, but it's the closest thing we've got. The bosom is like everything in the middle of you. It's all the deepest places. It's everything you mean the most. And the biblical word actually, in a number of places, actually refers to the liver. When you feel something really deeply in the Old Testament, you be like, it's in my liver. Which my kids say sometimes, it's really funny. The reason I said in that first sentence that God wanted to reveal him, his, his heart was to reveal, him, reveal his glory supremely in Jesus is because there's something in John's gospel where he refers to Jesus as, and it was translated before the, the more modern translation is the only begotten because, but we, we use that in relationship to children, but, it, but the Son of God existed before he was born, so he wasn't the only generated, the phrase, the word means the, the only one like it. There's, there's nothing else like it. That when the word became flesh, when the Son of God became the man Jesus, there's nothing else like him. There's only one Jesus. There's only one Son of God. There's only one complete and consistent and full and glorious, full of grace and truth embodiment of God's amazing nature, of what he wants to show us. There's nothing like it. And it is found in Jesus. And he says, we beheld that. We saw it in a way in which we sort of held it into ourselves. And it says that that same only one, it's mentioned twice in that passage, this one and only made him known, right? So I want to talk about just two things really quick, really quick, relatively speaking. The one is, is that, um, that Jesus displays the glory of God. Now, that probably has as much pull with you emotionally as like, I don't know, a decomposing hamster. And, 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 the, and the reason for that is that the biggest concepts in human existence, the biggest concepts in human existence, we just have these words for. That's all we've got. And so we say things like glory and grace, and we make picture squares, which I think are ridiculous. And because, the, because it's just a word, it's kind of vague, and it doesn't evoke anything, and so it doesn't motivate anything. So Christians run around saying the grace of God, the, the glory of God, and those words are enormously meaningful, but they don't mean anything to us. And it's because these things are enormously difficult to talk about. I mean, who wants— to define the glory of God. It's like defining sublime or beauty, right? There are some things that you can just describe. It's not that hard, like, like a basketball, right? If somebody was like, Nick, describe for me a basketball. Like, I feel like I can do that, right? I went to college for seven years, right? I feel like I could be like, it's this round thing, and you blow it up with air, and it has these grooves, and you throw it at things, and you can bounce it, and you could like go away if you didn't know it once. You'd be like, I think that's a basketball, and somebody's like, no, it's a watermelon. But still, you could try, right? Because it's describable. But then you start moving along, and something as simple as tying a tie. You know what happens if you Google how to tie a tie? You know what you get? You get sets of pictures. Right? C.S. Lewis said this, like, back in the 40s. He was like, yeah, you know, there's just some things that just don't describe well. Like, tying a tie. Like, do you want to, like, be on the phone with somebody and be like, okay, this is how you do it. That doesn't work. Right? 
And that's not—we're not, we're not as complicated as the glory of God yet. We're talking about wrapping a cloth item around your neck, which is just crazy, right? Who would do that? <laughs> right? And then—but the, then there are other things that— that they, re- they sort of require experience for you to understand them. So, like, if, if somebody was like, how soft is a horse's nose? What kind of soft is that? Right? Like, you'd kind of be like, well, oh, it's a little like velvet, but velvet is like too long, and it doesn't go back and forth well, and it's like, but it's different than like chinchilla soft or Samoyed soft, and it's like, I mean, like your kids, and, and, and the kid's like, wait, so you're like, you want to put your face on it? You're like, you want to put your face on its nose, right? <laughs> Seems like it could bite you or like stuff could come out, right? But you're like, yeah, but you just want to touch it. And you're like, you, but there, but there are some things that we think we're describing them and we're not. We're only referencing them. So if I said, you know, there was this night when Alexi and I had been dating for a while, and we were sitting by Lake Ontario, and we were talking, and I realized that I was very, very deeply in love with her, and that I probably wanted to make her my wife if she would consent. And not right there, just generally. Um, and, and so, like, you might be like, I know what you felt, but it's not because I could describe it. The only way you would know by, I meant by, I realized I was deeply in love with her, is if you had personally experienced yourself the human phenomenon of falling deeply in love with somebody. If my three-year-old was like, Daddy, what does that mean? It would be a little bit of fool's errand. That's why we have the saying, I will tell you when you're older, right? Partly because it's not appropriate right now, but partly it's because when you get older, I won't have to explain it. Because when you experience it, all I have to do is say the word, and you'll be like, oh yeah. And you see, there's a lot of things like that. The most profound things are like that. Trying to think about how you would describe it in order to evoke some profound, deep movement inside of us with something like the glory of God is really difficult. And so we stand around, we say stuff like glory and grace, and some of you may be like, look, I go to church, I've heard all that stuff, it doesn't do anything for me. But it's the reason it doesn't do anything for you actually isn't the reason you think. It's because you haven't experienced them. And so if I say grace of God, it's why if I say grace of God, there's like nine different reactions in the room. Some people will be like, oh, grace of God. And they're just being phony. They just like to respond. You know, that's all there is to it. And then other people are like, grace of God. Yeah, that doesn't do anything for me. And then there's other people who are like, grace of God. Yeah, right? And like, they're not idiots. And it's not like, you know, nowadays we go like, well, that's just not me. That's just not me. We're so deterministic right? It's not that it's not you. That person has experienced what that word signifies, and so when I say the word, it brings to memory experiences, and they go, oh, you don't have those experiences. It's not magic. It's not that you're a different kind of human. It's just that the most profound things are referential. We don't describe them. That's why it's very hard for me, like, this is what beauty is, right? And so this is this fundamental problem with the glory of God. What happens if you've never experienced it? How do I, what do we, what are we doing? Right? And it doesn't really help all that much for me to define it biblically, because here's the definition biblically. God's glory is his holiness made visible. Does that help? Because it's perfectly accurate. God's glory is his holiness made visible. 
right? And God's holiness is, well, just as complicated as describing his glory, right? It's all of his uniqueness, all of his greatness, and all of his goodness all wrapped together, and his glory is that being made known. That doesn't really help. And that's one of the reasons why seeing Jesus as the glory child is so important. Because it's, what John says is that when Jesus came as the man Jesus, and he lived in a certain way, and he acted in a certain way, and he died for us in a certain way, and he rose from the dead in a certain way, and everything about his being, his presence, his action, and his story, all of that displayed in front of us, he embodied and showed us what could not be described. So that having seen it, we could apprehend it, we could, we could behold it. And what, what Scripture is teaching is this is why Christmas is so important. Because nothing works unless you apprehend the glory of God. And you never apprehend the glory of God through religious explanation only. Ultimately, you have to see the gospel, the good news about the events related to the person who displays the greatness of God. All of his truth and all of his glory wrapped up together in a person showing what was all wrapped up in the bosom, the very heart of God for all of humanity coming forth in Jesus. And when you see that, you go, oh, Glory! Right! Right. There's a place in 2 Corinthians later in the Bible where the Apostle Paul says, For God who said in the beginning in Genesis, let light shine out of the darkness. Right? God has since the very beginning of creation been in the business of illuminating. That same God made his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And how did he do that? How did he get in us and allow a light to shine of the root of the knowledge of knowing him? It says this, in the face. Do you notice that language? In the face. The embodiment, the person, the child who became the savior. In him and what he did in the face of Christ. second part of that is, is that in doing that, Jesus is displaying the heart of God. And I just don't like saying the heart of God because I just feel like that is such a cliche in a lot of ways. But the part of the problem is some of the most important truths, we just say them over and over and then they feel like cliches, but they're the most—we had this—when I was in Florida, um, uh, we had this, like—my interns there wrote down all, like, these Nick sayings. And one of the Nick sayings in the book of Nick sayings was this. You can take any statement, no matter how profound, how important, how deep, and if you say it with a tone, certain tone of voice, you can make it sound ridiculous. Right? Jesus came and displayed the heart of God to us in all of his glory. Right? And for some of us, that's just another religious sentence. And I'm telling you that the reason that you feel that way is that the moment has not yet arrived for you where you have seen the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. But that can happen. It's not that you're a different kind of human and you can't experience that. But you may have to open yourself up to it in a new kind of way. You may have to look more intently at who Jesus is. You might need to read about his life. You might need to encounter other people who've really been changed by him. 
And as those things start to come together in a real picture, you may at some moment actually apprehend the glory of God. Because when it says that the, the only God, the, the one and only, coming out of the bosom of God the Father, has made the God that no one sees known. That's really important. I mean, think about that verse. I mean, John, in the Bible, it says, God, no one has seen ever. No one gets to see God. Except in the way that that God, who is intentionally hidden in that way, has made himself known. In one being in the man Jesus. Now, in some ways, saying that Jesus is revealing the glory of God and he's revealing the heart of God is kind of saying the same thing. Because what is the heart of God? Right? The heart of God is, is that you and I would see, savor, and enjoy the most valuable thing that there is in the entire universe. And guess what the most valuable, intrinsically valuable, and rightfully valuable thing is in the entire universe? It's God. It's not arrogant for him to, for him to not only want, but demand that we know, see, savor, and enjoy him. And that is what he wishes to share with us. And so what is coming out of his heart is that we would know God as he actually is and not how we invent him to be. And when we see God as he is and not how we invent him to be, we see him in his holiness with all of its uniqueness, all of its greatness, and all of its goodness. That is his glory. And it is most clearly displayed and necessarily seen by us, beheld by us, in Jesus. But there are, there are a couple of reasons that I just want to make really clear as we, as we start to close together. And that is this. One is that God wants you to not just see Jesus as the peace child— and not just see Jesus as the Savior, but in addition to see him as the one who reveals his glory. First, because we actually, it, seeing God in all of his glory for who he really is, and for that to inform the other two things, is actually what brings the, the capacity to actually live in it. That's really important. There, see, there, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of Americans who have accepted Jesus as Savior. They would say, they'd be like, so have you accepted Jesus? They'd be like, yep. But there's probably a lot of people here who you'd label yourself Christian. You'd say you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, your whatever that means or something. Um, you even felt really strongly about that at some point. And, you know, nothing's really happened with it, but, you know, you're kind of a Christian, and here you are at Christmas, and it's really great here at Christmas. But if even accepting Jesus as Savior has never really done that much for you, what I would argue from what the Apostle John, I think what John would say to you if he was here, which would be a much more interesting sermon, I promise, is he would say something like this. It was never God's intention for you to just accept Jesus as Savior. That was never his intention. It was, it was his intention that when you saw the Savior, Jesus, that you would see in him all the beauty of God himself. 
and you would apprehend his holiness with all of its uniqueness, all of its greatness, and all of its goodness, and you would see how profoundly other that is from you, and from everything you've experienced, and everyone you've ever known, and everything that you've ever seen, and when you saw that, it would do something in you. It would ruin you for the world. It would ruin you for selfishness. It would ruin you for personal independence. It would fundamentally ruin you for everything. But seeing and savoring and knowing and imitating and embracing and expressing to others and living towards others something of the glory of God impictured and embodied in you because you've seen it in the face of Christ. And part of the problem is, is that we're kind of working with no juice. Think about it this way. Uh, I'm a fisherman. I've always been a fisherman. I'm unrepentant about being a fisherman. And um, I am looking for a freshwater fishing mentor, by the way, because I can slam in salt water, but I don't know what I'm doing here. Um, This is a fish finder. And if you don't know what a fish finder is, um, the name is actually pretty self-explanatory. It's just a radar in your boat to find fish. And um, if you think about it this way, everybody has something that is sort of salvation to them. It's what they want. They believe their life will be good if they have it. It's what either legitimates them as a person. It's what they hope to achieve. It's what they hope to have. And let's just use a religious word for it, salvation, okay? It's what you're after. And everybody has a means to be saved, a way to get what you think will legitimate you. And that's a little bit like the fish finder. It's your mechanism. And you see, even if your mechanism is Jesus— If Jesus being your Savior is just this mechanism, and it is not connected power-wise to the glory of God, you can push the power button all day long for the thing to work and to get you what you want, and it won't. It won't. It just doesn't work, right? Like, I mean, think about it. How many of us, part of our little salvation idea for ourselves is like good health, right? I would like to have bigger muscles and and like weigh my high school weight and all that kind of stuff. And And I know the salvation model to get there. I need to eat fewer brownies and ice cream and meats of various kinds. And I need to exercise more. This, the salvation mechanism is not difficult, but here's the problem. God help me, I love brownies. I just do. I love brownies. I love ice cream. I'm lazy. And so I, I know what it takes. I've got, the, I've got the, the goal. I've got the salvation mechanism. I just don't have any juice. And there are so many Christians, so many people, Many of them are people who come to church on Christmas, and rarely otherwise. And that's really not your fault, because you were sold a bill of goods about Jesus, that if you would just accept him, that it would make some big difference in your life. And yet, you were given a Jesus whose face did not radiate the glory of God. He was like a salvation thing. He was a, you're going to get out of hell. You're going to be forgiven from your sins. Your life will get better. Some cute girl from the Christian youth group will go out with you. Like, it was some kind of something to go somewhere to do something. And it, but it wasn't the glory of God. 
And so when you tried to work that thing to get your salvation, you were pushing the religious button. You're like, Jesus work, Jesus work. And it didn't work. Because seeing Jesus as the glory of God is the juice. It's the power. It's what makes it work. And it just isn't going to do anything unless it's hooked up. What? There's fish here? Just kidding. <laughs> However, I also want you to know that it, it's not just that. That's actually a pragmatic issue. It's an enormously important pragmatic issue. We're not going to be the embodiment of goodwill towards men until our, our compulsion to control ourselves and to be selfish and to have things our own way and to do all the things in fear and pride that limit any capacity us to feel any goodwill towards men are pushed down by a bigger love. You, listen, your body isn't going to stop saying, I want stuff. It's not going to stop. The only thing that's going to bring any of the, like, crappy stuff under control is if a larger voice— a bigger image, a greater motivation, a better thing pushes it aside. Right? Did you ever know the guy that was like dating a girl that was just not good for him? And everybody's like, you need to break up with her. You need to break up with her. You need to break up with her. He's like, yeah, whatever. And then he met like the right girl and then he broke up with her. Now, that's not a very honorable way to do things. But you understand the motivation dynamic. But one of the things I think is also important to realize is that's actually not the end of the deal. Because once you realize that the glory of God is supposed to be this amazing motivator, the question is, why would it be an amazing motivator? Why would religion be a, this, like, great thing that, I, like, I don't want to become more religious. It's, bec it's because God is— God isn't a stuffy religious dude. God is the embodiment of everything that is most glorious and beautiful and honorable. And what he is displaying in Christ is those things. And there is, there really is nothing in terms of value or treasure or even pleasure or happiness that compares to God as he is known for what he is. And so ultimately, he's not just the power that sends you towards a new goal he lays before you. He is himself the treasure you find when you do it. This picture is a, um, it's a side imaging um, image from a fish finder. So the guy's out looking for fish, and there's this box. It's a treasure chest. He's looking for fishes. There they are. And he was pretty happy about that. And then he saw that. And then he didn't care about the fish anymore. And in some ways, that is what happens. That is what happens. When we see God, when we seek to see Jesus, not just as peace child, not just as Savior, but as glory child. And we seek to move into that and recognizing that we need that for him to be truly our Savior, for him to bring peace on earth, at least in us and through us, But as we seek that, 
as we walk into Jesus and we start saying, okay, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? And we may be still seeking through that things that we want for ourselves, which may be selfish and they just might be good things. That might, you might just want to, just might want a good relationship. You might want to heal your relationship with your parents and you just don't know how to do that. And you think maybe Jesus can help and he totally can help change you so you can be the kind of person they might need. But in that search, what you actually stumble upon is God himself. In a way that you really haven't ever seen him before, you really haven't ever experienced him before, in a way that's a little terrifying, in its way that's enormously internally, personally humiliating, but in a way that is the most profoundly freeing thing you've ever experienced, who is himself the most profoundly beautiful and honorable and encouraging and courage enabling and transformative and directing thing you have ever experienced it is the most otherworldly thing that it, it's be, it, it's a picture that you couldn't have seen in your mind until you experienced it in the face of Christ Jesus when you find and see what you seek when you seek him not just as the peace child and not just as the savior child but when you seek him as the glory child the one in whom you're not just trying to get saved or even just to have a little good peace in the world, but the one in whom you believe God will display his own glory. And when you do, when that happens, that word glory, it just won't be the same. It'll be like saying, I remember the night I fell in love, if you've fallen in love. It'll be like somebody said, hey, I've been to the Grand Canyon, and you've been to the Grand Canyon. You're like, oh, yeah, that's all you need to say. It'll be like that. You'll be that person. The other person is silently judging in the pew, and you're like, yeah, oh, yeah. That's all I want to encourage you. I just want to encourage you to see Jesus all the way. See him all the way through. Don't stop at peace, child. Don't stop at even Savior. He came to be the Savior so that we could experience and see and savor and enjoy and be driven by the glory. Let's pray. Father, as, um, as the kids come back and as we sing some more and as we just celebrate um, the glory child, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus a little bit more for who he is. I pray that you'd motivate us to see him more and accept him more for who he is, and I pray that you would do something in us, that these words that are vague religious words like grace and glory, we pray that you would help us to see them in Christ, in his life, and his death, and his resurrection, and who he is, so that it would do something for us, and in us, and through us. I pray that this Christmas would be unlike any other for many people here, and that we would all enjoy it and savor it for what it's meant to be. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.